God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you, through your spirit, use ordinary people to preach. Um, God, I am very aware right now in this moment that people need to hear from you more than me. So would you make that happen? Would you open our eyes to who we are as the people of God? And God, would you inspire us to live out even just a fraction of that? So I ask for your help. Speak through me or in spite of me, but speak, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love a good Cinderella story, and one of them that you'll probably hear a lot of because it's Super Bowl week coming up is that of Tom Brady. I love this picture. That's a picture of Tom Brady at the NFL Draft Combine some 25 years ago. Um, do you know he had like some of the worst measurables that you could possibly have? He ran like the slowest 40 time, like slower than most of the offensive linemen. And they're 300 pounds. Now, people, people almost universally agree, Tom Brady is the best quarterback that's ever played in the NFL. Do you know that every single NFL team passed on him multiple times? He was pick number 199 in his draft. There were seven other quarterbacks that were taken in front of him. Um, he didn't even start all of the games his senior year in college. And so he was dismissed by most people, and yet he became the, the winningest Super Bowl winning quarterback. He's won seven Super Bowls as a quarterback, and every single team that passed on him, if given a second chance, would have said, oh yeah, we'll take him. <laughs> or maybe you're not a sports guy. Maybe you just like the Cinderella story as the Cinderella story of the mistreated by her stepmother and stepsisters, forced to wait on them hand and foot, sleeping in a drafty attic with only little talking mice to keep you company, but then chosen by the prince of the land to be the princess, rejected but chosen. What is it about this fairy tale? What is it about this story that hits so deep within us? Is it perhaps that the Messiah was the stone that was rejected that became the cornerstone? The one that we should have seen coming but was universally rejected pretty much by his people? Only to be the very foundation in which the people of God were built on from that time forward so that now billions of people believe in him and serve him. Uh, let me read for you 1 Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Church, do you know who you are? You are the people of God. You are a new temple, a new race, a kingly priesthood, a holy and chosen nation that now reflects God to a watching world. Just as Christians sometimes forget who they are in Christ, I think churches from time to time forget who we all are, or all y'all are in Christ. I, I checked with Derek on that. That's the plural, I guess, all y'all. So when I read a passage like this, it renews my hope, and it reminds me what I'm trying to give my life to is to see the people of God flourish and thrive that we might have a witness like this in a world. Now, I'm going to unpack all of these different metaphors of what the church is, but, but I really have one goal, to live up to our high and holy calling as the church, the people of God. And I think it's summarized for us in two words, worship and witness. Can you say those with me? Worship, witness. All right, good job. If you forget everything else I say, remember those two words, worship and witness. We are called to worship God and to bear witness to His goodness in a way where the watching world sees us. Our identity as God's people begins with Jesus, who we're told is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. The cornerstone on which everything else is built. Now, a cornerstone is an important part of ancient architecture. It's the foundational stone in a building. It is set, and then the entire structure of the rest of the building is built off of it. And so if the cornerstone isn't square, or if the cornerstone is shoddy in every way, then the entire building is going to be skewed. You don't mess around in choosing the cornerstone. You find the very best because everything else has to be built on it or to fit around it. Do you see the irony here? Jesus, the living stone, the Messiah, was rejected by men but chosen by God. The foundation, the cornerstone on which the church is built, Jesus was rejected by the people who should have recognized him. He was rejected by the ones who were waiting for him to come. They should have welcomed him, but they rejected him. But God, seeing who he is, God choosing and loving him, chooses him to become the foundation for an entirely new people to be built, the church. This is why one of the most common names for a church in the 19th and 20th century is Cornerstone Community Church. You've probably seen one before, or Cornerstone Church in some way. It's a name that acknowledges that Jesus is the foundation of everything that we say and do. He is our rock he is our cornerstone. Even Rock Hill kind of plays into this a little bit, right? That Jesus is the one, the foundation, the rock in which the church is built. And isn't it interesting that Peter is the one claiming this? 
Peter, the rock in which I will build my church, is actually the one saying, no, Jesus is the cornerstone on which the entire church will be built. But this stone and rock analogy has another dimension to it as well. Not only is Jesus the cornerstone promised in Isaiah 26, verse 6, not only is he the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense predicted in Psalm 118, verse 22, but now as his people, we are living stones being built into something new. He is the living stone, but we are also living stones that we're told being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? It's this, that we are now the temple of God. That's going to take a little explaining by doing a little crash course through history. In the Old Testament, the place in which God was drawn near to, the place in which God dwelled was first the tabernacle and then the temple. See, there was a challenge. How does a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Or, on the flip side, how, do, how does a sinful people draw near to a holy God without being consumed? And so God constructed first the tabernacle and then the temple as a place for His glory to dwell and a place for people to draw near. And so this is how it happened. If you were a Gentile, there was an outer court that you could go to, but no further. In addition, if you were a woman, uh, an outer court, but no further. Then there was another courtyard reserved only for Jewish men. Then a holy place where only the priests could go, a subsection of the Levites. And then there was, at the very center of the temple, the most holy place, the place where God's Shekinah glory or visible glory dwelt among his people. It was cube in structure. It had the Ark of the Covenant in there, and there was one person, the high priest, who was allowed to go in there once during the year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement on behalf of the people. Otherwise, the people were reminded over and over again of their separation from the presence of a holy God. And what separated this holy place from the most holy place was this giant curtain, this veil that, that kept people away except the high priest once a year. It's the same veil that was torn in two when Jesus cried out, it is finished, and died. Incredible symbolism there, showing us that we now have access to the very presence of God. <coughs> but Jesus did something during his earthly ministry that actually turned the temple and its structure on its head. He said in John chapter 2 that he was the temple. Listen to these words. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Remember, the temple was the place where God's presence was. It's where his glory dwelt. And now Jesus is saying, I'm here. I am the presence of God. I am the temple. If you want to draw near to God, you must come to me. I'm revealing to you the Father. That's what Jesus was saying. And Hebrews chapter 1 affirms this. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. But the temple, the true temple, was rejected. The cornerstone became the stone of stumbling. Now, this didn't surprise God, but happened actually according to his predetermined plan, which Peter reminds us in verse 8. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to. But now, in the New Testament, the temple shifts yet again. The tangible presence of God on earth is no longer found in a place of brick and stone. It's no longer confined to the body of Jesus Christ, but now through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent on the day of Pentecost, the temple of God is now the people of God when they gather together. That's where you want to go if you want to experience the presence of God most significantly on the earth. You go to the people that are filled with the Spirit. And so, Peter writes, you are living stones of a new kind of temple. And you actually reveal God to a watching world, especially when you gather together, in a concentrated way when you gather together. Guys, this is absolutely astounding, isn't it? This is why so many churches take on the name Living Stones Church or Living Stones Fellowship, because we're inviting people into a people in which God dwells. See, no longer do we have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to even go to a church building made of brick or stone or wood. But together when we gather, we become the building, the building of God, the place of his glory. The commentator Juan Sanchez says this, wherever Christians are gathered throughout the world, God is there. Wherever there is a true church, there the rule of God is displayed and the worth of Christ, the fame of Christ is proclaimed. When you meet with your church next Sunday, that is a tiny part of a small section of a wall of the temple that God is building throughout his world. When someone is converted, they become a living stone brought into the church and built into the temple. Christianity is not an individual endeavor. We were created for community. We are the temple, the place where God's where God dwells on earth. And Pastor Dean said in our preaching meeting, I'm just one of the stones. That's just a freeing reminder, isn't it? We're not the cornerstone. We have a role to play, but we're not the hero. Now, just so you know that this temple analogy doesn't end with the church, but actually when we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the earth, it is shaped like the holy of holies. And we are filled with all kinds of temple imagery. That is basically saying that all of creation will once again be the place where God dwells because sin will be no more, and we will dwell with him. And so we see this temple analogy woven all the way through the story, and in the here and now, we're it. (coughs) We're it to a watching world. But that's not all we are. Along with this temple analogy, we we also read that we are a new priesthood, a royal priesthood. Uh, We are to be kingly priests. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know that the office of priest and king didn't really mix very often. There's a guy in Genesis by the name of Melchizedek, and he just confuses everybody that kind of inhabits both of these offices. But in the nation of Israel, there was the kings, there was the priests, and there were the prophets. And, and kings and priests in particular didn't mix. In fact, the two times that 
kings tried to take on priestly functions, they experienced the judgment of God. In, in 1 Samuel 15, when, when Saul uh, offered a sacrifice before a particular battle, um, not only did he not obey God, but, but God's judgment fell on him, and the kingdom was taken away from him and given to David. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, there was a long-term king called, by the name of Uzziah, who went into the temple to burn incense, something that only the priests were supposed to do, and when he did that, he was struck with leprosy, and it eventually killed him. And so this was not something to be trifled with. There was the priests, and there was the kings, and, and there were the prophets that spoke the word of God, and Jesus comes and actually inhabits all of those things, but now tells us through Peter that we are to be a royal priesthood. We are to be kingly priests. What in the world does that mean? It means we are royal. We are called to be part of God's kingdom rule, that God extends his rule and his reign through us because we submit to his rule and his reign, and we live out of a different, under a different reign. <clears throat> priests in that we are to worship and bear witness to him. We offer spiritual sacrifices, he says, in this temple or in this people of God. Now, the sacrifices we offer are not the sacrifice of atonement that Jesus made. He already did that. But there are a lot of other sacrifices of worship, of thanksgiving, of, of free will offerings. And, and we offer those things through our lives. Not only that, but we serve as witnesses or mediators to a watching world. We reveal to them what God is like and we speak of his goodness to them. Now, to make this more plain, the way that the people of God are, the way that the people in this world are to know what God is like is to look at God's people. Now, we know Israel's history. They failed miserably at this. Church, how are we doing? Oof. Mixed bag, isn't it? It's a mixed bag. Now, there's grace for that. And yet, God brought judgment on Israel because the picture that they showed the surrounding nations was not what God was like, but rather they became like all of the other nations of the earth. Now the church is to be the people of God called out to, to serve as intermediaries, to be royal priests to a, to a watching world. And sometimes we reflect the very people that we're to show a different way to. It's tragic, isn't it? We forget who we are. Because we are a royal priesthood, the way that people in the world encounter the rule and the reign of God is through observing our lives together and our invitation to them. So we are God's temple. We are royal priests. What else? We are his people, and that's said in three different ways, three different metaphors, a, a new race, chosen race, a new nation, and a new people. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you know the Old Testament, you know that it was the Jewish people, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were God's chosen people. It was the people of Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon that were God's nation. It was the Jewish race of Mordecai and Esther that God preserved and favored. But now we're being told here by Peter, writing primarily to Gentiles, that they are the new people of God, the race of God, built on faith in Jesus, the cornerstone. What is going on here? <clears throat> God chose the people of Israel, not because they were awesome, but because he was. Deuteronomy 7 makes that clear. 
He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your forefathers. God loved them because he chose to love them, and now God loves us because he chooses to love us. Keep that in mind if there's ever a temptation to feel haughty in your heart. So what exactly is going on here when Peter writes to the Gentiles, those who weren't necessarily a thing or a people, and says, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's actually a really cool illustration from the prophet Hosea. It's a promise that's fulfilled from the prophet Hosea. Now, I don't have time for the whole backstory, but prophets sometimes prophetically enacted or acted out what was actually going on at a national level. And Hosea's job description might be the worst one in the Old Testament. God called him to marry a woman named Gomer who was a prostitute that he knew was going to continue to be unfaithful to him. And he was to love her and faithfully pursue her and reflect the kind of covenantal love toward her that God continued to show to his people even though they acted like Gomer. And one of the things that happened is that Hosea's kids weren't even his kids. His second and his third born, he prophetically named not my people and no mercy. Now, that's not a great name choice if you're looking at a baby name book. But then God, through Hosea, in chapter 2, verse 23, makes an incredible promise. Speaking to his kids, he says, And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and she shall say, you are my God. Now we read, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. And you say, oh, that actually was about us. Those who weren't a people, those who many of us weren't even pursuing the Lord. He says, mine, you are mine, and I will show mercy to you. We are a chosen race, a people for his own possession, a holy nation. Let me tease out the implications of that just for a moment. Church, do you know that you are a new race, a chosen race? Um, that's a pretty charged word these days, isn't it? Everybody has an opinion on race. It's Black History Month, and so we're going to see all the familiar battle lines like start. We'll learn some good history, and then we'll hear counterpoints and all these things. But if you don't believe that race is still charged, just listen to the discourse this month, and you'll realize it is. And yet Peter is speaking to the church, men and women of different races and ethnicities, and says, you are a chosen race. Do you see how radical that is? God's chosen race, or people, is now all of those who believe in Christ not just ethnic Jews. What marks us in this race is that we believe in Jesus and our lives are being built on the cornerstone. Brothers and sisters, this kills once and for all any kind of racism 
within the church. And it doesn't mean that all racial distinctions are gone. It just means they're secondary. They don't matter all that much. We're family. And because we are a chosen race, the hostility that exists between one another being fully dealt with in Jesus' broken body and shed blood so that if you need your pound of flesh, you already got it. Christianity provides the greatest hope in the world to eradicate racism. Church, you are a holy nation. Since I'm offending, I might as well keep going. We are to be set apart, (laughs) reflecting the very character of our holy God to a watching world, and we are called to be a new nation. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean we're no longer Americans or Russians or Chinese or Israelis? It means that our primary identity marker and loyalty belongs to Jesus and his kingdom, not our national identity. We are his people before we are Americans. We are God's people before we're Palestinians or Israelis or Egyptians or Ukrainians or Russians or Chinese or French or fill in the blank. And because we are a holy nation, that means that our primary allegiance lies with Jesus, not our national identity. In fact, you have far more in common, many of you, with a Chinese Christian than you do many Americans. And that's beautiful. Now, does that mean that you can't have a level of nationalistic pride, that you can't be proud to be an American? No. It just means that that's a secondary identity. You're a Christian first. So act like it. Third, we are a people for God's own possession. This means that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price like we sang earlier. The precious blood of Jesus is what secured our price. God chose us like Israel, not because we are awesome and amazing and breathtaking, but because he is good and kind and gracious. This changes how you view yourself, and it changes how you view everyone else. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. Because we have been chosen in Christ to be God's people, it then doesn't matter if we are rejected by people here. And you know what? I might even say it's more important what God thinks about you than what you think about you. Some of you are so paralyzed by your own concept of yourself and trying to figure it out that you're largely ignoring what really matters, and that's what God says about you. And here's the crazy thing. If you're in Christ then God's verdict of you has already been delivered. You're mine, my child, righteous in him, precious, holy. And if that's true, you can be rejected by others, and it shouldn't shake you to the core. Now, remember how I said our purpose in this was getting back to two words, Worship and witness. It's because that's where the passage directs us. Why are we a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession? Why are we a temple? Why did God choose us? What is his goal here? Verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him 
who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we might worship him ourselves and that we might bear witness to his goodness. Worship and witness. We praise him because he is worthy and he has done all this. And we declare his goodness to others that they might know him too. Worship and witness. Now, how do we do this? Verse 11 and 12 tell us. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, if you've been paying attention in 1 Peter, this language shouldn't shock you. I mean, the whole series is called Chosen Exiles. We are privileged and we are persecuted. There's a tension there in that identity. This is not our home, but we're told that we are exiles and sojourners here. Now, maybe modern equivalents to exiles and sojourners. An exile is one living in a land that is not their home. They are generally not there by choice. A modern-day equivalent might be that of a refugee. A sojourner is one traveling through a land not their home, one working in a land not their home. A modern equivalent might be a migrant. Does it change your perspective at all that instead of saying sojourners and exiles, it says beloved migrants and refugees? Abstain from the passions of the flesh? The implication in all these words are clear. This is not our home. Somewhere else is. And so we must embrace this tension. We are chosen migrants. We are beloved refugees. This is who we are. And if we forget that, if we forget what our real home is and where it is, it will give us the wrong posture toward the world today. See, as Christians, we're not to triumph over people with power. We're to faithfully serve and recognize where our real home and allegiance is. We don't have a perfect nation or home here, nor do we have to, because we have one in heaven, and it will one day come. Now, this doesn't cause us to withdraw, nor does it cause us to need to take over, but to make peace with being chosen, beloved exiles and sojourners here. In fact, the next few sections in 1 Peter are going to instruct us on how to live under ungodly authority, like governments or maybe family structures. It also helps us to understand in verse 12, 11 and 12, what our battle is actually against. And it's not non-Christians, but instead the passions that wage war inside of us. Beloved, I urge you as migrants and refugees to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's an internal dimension and an external dimension here in a, at, at war. We're at war within ourselves in conflicting desires, the desire to honor God and the desire to rebel against God and be our own masters. The passions of the flesh are simply the innate desires to not care about what God thinks, to do what we want, to be our own masters, to determine good and evil for ourselves. These are the desires that wage war in our soul and demand our allegiance, and we're to abstain from them. But externally, we also live in a hostile world. And he says, keep your conduct, verse 12, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so as royal priests, as a new nation, as a holy people, as a new race, we reflect our true king. We serve as declarers and displayers and delighters of this gospel and this new kingdom. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness 
and into this marvelous light. This is who we are, and so this is what we do. But notice then that our worship and our witness is not just as individuals. We're not just sent out on our own to do all of this. We're set apart as the people of God to do this together. Our corporate worship and our corporate witness as God's people is one of our best apologetics that we can possibly have. The way that we love each other matters and it demonstrates a different way to live. When we invite non-believers into our midst to hear us sing, he will hold me fast. He is worthy of our praise. He is faithful. He is good. Despite what we're walking through, it preaches in a way that I can't. There's a declarative nature to our songs that hint at a different kingdom and a hope in that kingdom. See, as we live together under the rule and reign of God, we show the watching world a different way to live. We love each other as Christ has loved us, even when we love our enemies and we serve them. We demonstrate a subversive kingdom that has overcome every other human kingdom that has ever existed. I don't care what seems big and bad and new on the block, the kingdom of God will prevail. It always has. Try to snuff it out. North Korea, try. There's a thriving underground church there. Iran, one of the fastest disciple-making movements in the world is going on in Iran, one of the most hostile places to Christianity. Over and over again, the subversive nature of the kingdom triumphs. And here's the key. The cornerstone that was rejected but exalted becomes a model for our witness. Or, in the words of Revelation, we overcome them through the blood of the Lamb. That truly is a subversive way to live, isn't it? It kind of gets a little exciting, especially the rebels among us. To laugh in the face of the king of darkness. To live the way that God has created us to live. If, if even just glimpses is our high and our holy calling that not only honors God, but it reveals him to a watching world. Church, this is what we're doing or at least what we're trying to do imperfectly. And so I have one application for you. City groups. If you try to live all this out in a large group setting, it's just not going to work. It won't. Like, you don't get to that level. You don't get to, like, demonstrate that kind of, like, real-life thing in a large gathering like this because of the challenging nature of just this. So, if you're not in one, find one. Like, it, it will have a far bigger impact on you than this sermon. I promise you. If you are in one, dive in deeper. Really, like, commit to it. Be there. Like, can I just tell you that the sum total of Citigroup is always greater than the individual events? Like, there are some events where you're like, oh, that was great. There are some that are like, eh, we did it. And yet the sum total, it's kind of like family and family gatherings. The sum total is so much greater. If God has stirred in you in any way a desire to lead one, oh, we'd love to help train you, disciple you toward that. I want you to picture with me what the twin ports would look like with little pockets of light in every single nook and cranny and neighborhood in the, in the twin ports, in office spaces, in, in classrooms, in living rooms, in backyards. That's what we're called to do. We get to worship God 
and we get to be his witnesses here in this world. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for what it provokes us to, what it invites us to. Jesus, you are the cornerstone that was foolishly rejected and yet the foundation on which everything is being built, and it's a good foundation. God, would you help us to even scratch the surface of this calling, that we might bring honor and glory to you and rejoice in the small little role that we get to play as just one stone in the building. Glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.